Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, Lord, again for your love and your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, that it ministers to our hearts uh, now. Words that you wrote down through men thousands of years ago apply to us here in 2003. And I just pray, Father, we'd be receptive to receive from you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Leviticus, I'm loving it. I don't know about you guys, but you know, most people, the people call up and find out we're in Leviticus. I told you this last week. One guy called up and said, So, what are you guys studying on Wednesday night? I said, Leviticus. He goes, Oh, that sounds like fun, right? I mean, but Leviticus, if it's in the Bible, we need to study it. Amen? Every word, every verse, every chapter. And I've been loving this. Even though I've been, God's blessed me to be teaching the Bible for about 15 years, I've never taught through Leviticus before. So, this has been great for me. And again, it's not a book that you would pick out if you're doing a topical study one Sunday morning. And if you're one of these guys who's roaming through the Bible, you're probably going to skip right on by Leviticus most of the time. But it's a great book, as we've seen so far, because it is a key to understanding the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In the Old Testament, we saw as we began in Genesis, the picture of man falling into depravity because of his sin. Man chose to sin. Man walked away from the perfection in the garden and chose to sin, and because of that, he was in bondage to sin. Then then in Exodus, we saw God free him from the bondage. Remember, they were in bondage in Egypt, and God delivered them from that bondage, and and through it, it's a picture of what Christ does for us, that we have the depravity of sin, and that God delivers us from bondage. Through, he sent Moses as a deliverer, and for us, Moses is a picture of Jesus Christ. When we get to Leviticus, we, it's really main theme. Again, I keep reiterating this because I want to make sure we understand it. The main theme of Leviticus is holiness. You know, once we've been delivered from sin, and now we've been freed from the bondage of it, we're to walk in holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. That's what Jesus said. And so we're to be, be holy. And set apart to him. But we've seen so far that for holiness to come, that blood must be shed. The shedding, there must be a shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And so far what we've seen in the first uh, four chapters is we saw several different sacrifices take place. The first three chapters, we saw what are called free will offerings. These are offerings that were given not because you had to, but because you wanted to. It was from, the, from your heart out of thanksgiving to the Lord. And you know what? That's how all giving ought to be in our lives, guys. Never give out of compulsion. Give because you love the Lord and because He loves you. In Leviticus 1, we saw the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was a picture of of Jesus' total submission because they took the animal, they took the best part of it, and then they sacrificed the entire thing. They would skin the animals, as we talked about. It was a bloody mess. But remember that the awfulness of sin is, is, was being shown. As people would come to make these sacrifices, they would see just the heavy cost that sin had. There would have to be heavy-duty shedding of blood, and they would have to slit the throat of the animal, and blood would run everywhere, and they'd have to cut the animal open, and thank you, Jesus, we don't have to do that anymore. Amen? Aren't you glad that the price has been paid, and we're not bringing little lambs here on Sundays? And so they had to go through that heavy-duty you know, cutting of the, of the throats of the lambs and of the animals. Then we saw in chapter 2 the grain offering that points to Christ's per- perfection. We saw the fine flour sifted, which, which points to His temptation. The oil and the frankincense, which point to the Holy Spirit, that it was without leaven, again, without sin. And then in chapter 3, we saw the peace offering. And remember, this was the only offering where it was actually shared. They would give part of the offering to the Lord, and the rest of it they would take home and have a huge feast in celebration of the fact that they can now walk in peace. Now why is the burnt offering and then the the offering of His perfection, the grain offering, and then the peace offering? Because there must be the shedding of blood, there must be a perfect sacrifice before we can have peace. 
Amen? That's why chapter 1 is the burnt offering, and then it's the perfection of Christ in the grain offering, and then finally the peace offering. Then last week in chapter 4, we looked at the sin offering. So we move from the free will offerings to the first one of the offerings that was mandatory. It was required. Because our sin cannot be forgiven any other way. Again, only through the shed blood of a perfect sacrifice. Remember last week we talked about these sins, that they were sins, the word there is unintentional, or sins done in ignorance, sins done without premeditation. I talked to you last week about how I kind of struggled with that word a little bit, because I know the closer I get to the Lord, I know when I'm sinning pretty much every time. How about you? Amen? Don't you know when you're sinning? Because the Holy Spirit's right there giving the, the Holy Spirit head slap, right? He's convicting you of sin, and He's saying, that's wrong right? And it's a loving God that does that. He draws us back into fellowship out of his love for us. But we can sin unintentionally, I mean, in the sense of, you know, if you're driving on a, on a road and you think the speed limit's 45 and it's really 25 and you're driving 45, you're breaking the law whether you know it or not. And what it points to is this, that whether you know it's sin or not, it's still sin. Amen? It's not my knowledge that determines that something is sin. It's the righteousness of God that determines if something is sin. If God says it's sin, whether I'm ignorant, whether I don't know, whether I do it unintentionally, it's still wrong. And what it points to is that every man, woman, and child is a sinner. And every one of us needs a sin offering for there to be restoration between sinful man and holy God. Last week we saw that that the offering was made for priests, the, the most holy of people. It was made for the nation. It was made for rulers. And then it was made for everyday people. Just showing again that, that all men, all women, all people are sinners in need of a Savior. So we come to chapter 5 tonight, and we're going to look at the trespass offering. Where chapter 4 dealt with various people, this is going to deal with different sins that men and women can commit. And these are trespass uh, offering, uh, offering for because of sin. And because of the sin, they would have to go and make these offerings. Now, it's all, we're also going to see as we go through that some of these offerings also require what is called restitution. Not only is there a sacrifice given, but there must be restitution. And we'll talk about that more as we go, but in the body of Christ, it grieves the heart of God when there's something between two of His children. You know, when my kids are fighting with each other, it breaks my heart. And the same is true of our Heavenly Father. If we've got kids who are, if if he's got children who are not getting along, or there's infighting between, you know, denominations, if you will, or if people are bickering and fighting, the Lord desires that 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 all go away. That there's one church, and they're all a part of it, and that we all be loving toward one another. And so we see here that those who break it, that they, not only to bring an offering, but they need to make restitution, first with God, and as we'll see next week in chapter 6, they'll also need to make restitution with those they've offended as far as other people on the planet. So we're going to see tonight as we go through in this daily, again, our, our, our pursuit of living holy and sanctified lives, we're going to see that, that the ultimate consequence of sin is broken fellowship with our Father. Even now, as Christians, when we sin, we break fellowship with our Father. Some people struggle with that. They say, wait a minute, the sin was paid for, it is finished, I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven. That's true, you are. And I'm adopted into His family, and that's absolutely true also. But we can still break fellowship with our, our Heavenly Father, just as you can with your earthly Father. So the knowledge of sin brings conviction, conviction brings repentance, repentance brings restoration. For the unbeliever, it leads to salvation, and for the believer, it, it, it goes back to fellowship. And so before we look at verse 1, the, the analogy I've used with you guys before to understand this, 
is, you know I have four children who I love and I would die for any one of them. But if one of my children reaches over and smacks one of the other ones at the dinner table, they're going to deal with dad, they're going to probably get a SWAT, and they may get sent to their room. And now while they're in their room, they're still my son or my daughter. They're still my child. I still love them. I still would die for them. My, my love for them has not changed one bit. But because of their sin, they've broken fellowship with their father. But here's the good news. If my child who, who smacked his brother or sister comes walking back to dad and says, Dad, I'm really sorry, and with repentance in his heart, I'm going to put him in my lap and say, Son, it's okay. I love you. And I'm going to sit him right back down at that table, and our fellowship's going to be restored. And that's what we see tonight, is that these are, are mandatory offerings for those who don't know God, bringing them to salvation, and those who do, restoring us back to a place of fellowship. Remember that, again, that we can take a million steps away from God, but praise God, it's only one step back. So tonight we're going to see a list of sins and trespasses. Then we're going to see the response of the guilty. And then lastly, we're going to look at some restoration off, or restitution offerings. Excuse me. Look at verse 1 of, of Leviticus chapter 5 as we look at a list of sins and trespasses. The first one in verse 1. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness whether he has seen or known of a matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Now, this first sin is a witness who refuses to testify. The words there, it says, is either having seen or known. Either he's seen the violation, or he, he knows firsthand through knowledge. Now, it's interesting to me that not too long ago, I was on jury duty, about a year and a half ago, and there was a guy there who was a Jehovah's Witness who refused to be a part of the jury because he said he was, it was forbidden for him to take an oath. And so it's interesting to me that if you look in the Bible, it tells us that we are to be faithful under oath to give the truth, but also in Matthew 26, it says this. Jesus, when Jesus openly and bodily, again, put under oath, they put him under oath, the priest put him under oath, and he says to him, this is Caiaphas, said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, if he was a Jehovah's Witness, which obviously Jesus is not, and he's not Michael the Archangel like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach either, he'd say, well, I can't do that, I can't be under oath, right? But Jesus, being perfect God and being our example, responded, and here's what he said. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus not only gave him the truth, but he expounded on it. I love that. And you know what? The first sin that's here is somebody who knows the truth and is unwilling to stand up and tell what it is. It's somebody, whether it's on a witness stand, which is one place where it can happen, but I believe more commonly, it's that we know the truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. And the same thing that's said of not, being, not witnessing to the truth on a witness stand because you saw somebody commit a crime, I think even more importantly is that we are willing to stand up and bear witness to the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what He did for our lives. You know what? That's what, again, that's what baptism is. It's an outward statement of an inward change. And how many, of you t- how many times have you been in a situation where you know that God's telling you to speak up? How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? God's saying, you need to say something, right? And sadly, we don't always do it, do we, right? And I believe this verse for today, that's how it applies to our lives in the here and now. Jesus boldly proclaimed the truth. And how did the people respond in that chapter in Matthew? You know what they did? The priest tore his clothes, and then after tearing his clothes, they accused Jesus of being a blasphemer. Then the priests, the elders, and the scribes cried out, he's deserving of death. Then they spit in his face, then they beat him, then they struck him, and they mocked him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, which one of us, which one of us struck you? 
Now, it's interesting that an, an unwillingness to testify of the truth is sin. Jesus spoke the truth boldly, and what did, he, what did he get for it? He was persecuted. He was beaten. And he's Almighty God. He could have turned them all into rocks if he wanted to. And instead, he let them not only strike him, and they said, who's striking you? Tell us, prophesy. He not only, in his own heart, no doubt was saying, not only do I know who struck me, but I'm going to go die for you because I love you. That's the God that we serve. But know this, that we are called to do the same, to bear witness of Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the dead. And we should not dial it down or water it down or be quiet, but understand that just like Jesus was persecuted, so too we can be ready to face the same thing. Amen? But blessed are you, oh how happy are you, it says in Matthew, when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. You know what? Here's my opinion, guys. Pastor Day's opinion. If you're not getting persecuted, you're not being sold out enough for Jesus Christ. Amen? You know what? We're, we live in a, in a country that is in desperate need of, a, of our Lord and our Savior and our King. And when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter. And we're so worried about what men think. And we're so worried about our position in the eyes of others that we, that we don't want to say anything. And you know what? It was a sin here not to step up and speak the truth. And I believe it's a sin when we let the, when we let the opportunity go by and the Holy Spirit prompts us to say something and we don't say anything. Do you think we're going to be more grieved in heaven over the times that we were quiet or the times that we spoke up? We're going to be grieved. I think I told you guys some time back, I was at, a, I was at the uh, McDonald's, ran in to get a Coke, and I was still back in sales, and I ran in, and God put it on my heart to stand up on a table in McDonald's and tell everybody they needed Jesus. I didn't do it. Totally wimped out when I got my car. You know. but, but I was looking around going, you know what? These people need the Lord. And you know what, that's, oh, Pastor Dave, that's like radical, man. You're, you know, they'll put you in jail for that kind of stuff. But here's the reality. What would John the Baptist do? What would Paul the Apostle, what do you think Apostle Paul would be like? Yeah, well, you know, I can't say anything, it's McDonald's. They might, you know. You know, hey, they might come in for a Big Mac and get salvation. Amen? I mean, we need to be, we need to be bold about our faith and be listening to the power of the Holy Spirit and be responding to it. And you know what, the same thing, they, they, they took him, and whether it's a court of law or sharing our faith with the lost and dying world, may we be willing to speak the truth. Because it says here, if you do not tell it, you bear guilt. If you are not willing to testify of truth, whether it's in a court of law or on the McDonald's on Mission Street, you're still under guilt because you didn't listen to the Holy Spirit. Verse 2. Or if a person touches an unclean thing, whether it's a carcass of an unclean beast, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be under shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whether uncleanness with which a man may be with whatever excuse me, with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. So the first one is not speaking up, and the next one is touching something that is unclean. And in those days, they were not allowed to touch dead animals or dead bodies of human beings or a person who had leprosy or a woman within seven days after having a baby because that was her time of purification. And so there were times when they were not allowed to touch people or touch animals. Now you might think, what in the world does this have to do? But again, he's calling them to holy living. And so if you know that if you accidentally touch somebody, you know, touch a dead animal on accident or, or touch a, a person who's got leprosy without realizing it or touch a woman who's just given birth to a baby, there's going to be an extra amount of being sensitive to what you touch and where you go and, and what you do. As they're walking along the road, they no doubt are walking through a field. They're walking because it says even creeping things. They don't have to be touching dead bugs or anything. So they'd be walking along and they'd be kind of sensitive because they realized they wanted to stay holy. 
And they didn't want to be defiled by the things that they put their hands on, the things that they touched. Now this points again to the children of Israel, again, watching closely, but applies to each one of us. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, to walk circumspectly, looking around, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time for the days of evil. Remember that leprosy was one of the main things that we're not allowed to touch was a leper. Remember if you had leprosy in those days, you had to walk around and you, they, they would cover themselves up and if someone came near, they would shout out at the top of their lungs, unclean! Because they knew that if anyone came near to them, they too would get leprosy and they too would be defiled. But in the Bible, what is leprosy a type or a picture of? Sin. And so us as believers, though there aren't a lot of people walking around with leprosy, there is a lot of of sinfulness going on all around us. And the Lord is telling us that we're not to be touching that stuff. We're not to be putting our hands on it. We're to walk in holiness and keep our eyes open and say, Lord, I want to redeem the time for the days are evil. How much more guilty is it for us to choose to touch someone who's been, who is defiled? It says don't touch these things on accident. Don't accidentally touch a dead body or an an impure human. Don't touch them. But how much more guilty would we be if we choose to do it? In 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it says this, in 14, 15, and 16, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. We are to minister to the world, but we are not to have fellowship with it. Amen? Pastor Dave, how am I going to witness to people if I don't hang out with the world? The Bible says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We need, if it's not a ministry opportunity, then you're having fellowship with them. You mean, Pastor Dave, I shouldn't go hang out with my unsaved friends at their house? If you're not going over there to minister to them, the answer is, no, you shouldn't. Why? Because bad company corrupts good morals. That's what the Bible says. Now, you can either go with the opinions of the world and be like the world and just go with the flow and say, Pastor Dave, relax and lighten up. You know, I want to have a testimony before the world. Amen. If my neighbor across the street invites me over for dinner, I'm going to pray, I'm going to go, and I'm going to use that as an opportunity to share with them the love of God. That's why I live in the neighborhood I live in. That's why you work where you work. But those are not my friends. Those are not the people that I seek counsel from. Those are not the people that I hang out with. I'm not going to be yoked together with them. And all the more reason, those of you who are single here tonight, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amen? You know what? I don't care how good looking he is. I don't care how nice his car is or what kind of job he's got. And I don't care how fine she looks. You know, guy, here's the reality. The enemy's not going to tempt you, you know, with something you're not attracted to. He's not going to tempt you with the woman from the circus with no teeth. He's not going to do that because <laughs> it won't work, right? But he will tempt you with something that's attractive to your flesh. And so he says, touch no unclean thing. Don't, be, don't dive into the things that are going to draw you away from me. Be so in love with me that you don't want anything to get in front of that relationship. Nothing can be more important than my relationship with God. And so he says, first of all, he tells them again, you know, bear witness of the truth. And then he says, touch no unclean thing, verse 4. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips, to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, When he realizes it, then he shall be guilty of any of these matters. Now here's talking about making a rash oath or a promise, which later he realizes he cannot or should not fulfill. 
is basically speaking up and making a vow quickly or, and then just forgetting about it or realizing you can't do it. And the verse I thought about is where the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So it's not only speak up for the truth and, t- and touch no unclean thing and don't have fellowship with the world, but it's also make sure that your speech, that you're a man or a woman of your word. You be faithful to the promises that you make. When you say, I'm going to do something, you follow through. Amen? And the world is watching us. The world lies. Who's the chief of all liars? Satan. He's a roaring lion seeking way to devour, and he's a chief of all liars. But Jesus is the truth. And so if we are followers of Jesus Christ, shouldn't truth be coming out of our mouths? And so he's telling them, look, you guys need to stand up for the truth and speak an oath when it's necessary. And you know what else? You need to touch no unclean thing, and then you need to be a person of your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And when you realize that you've said something that you haven't kept, you're guilty. If you've accidentally touched something, whether you realize it or not, you're guilty. When you haven't stood up for the truth and spoken because you're worried about the consequences, you're guilty. Oh man, we're guilty. And so he's letting them all know, you're guilty. And so because of your guilt, he's giving them instruction for holy living, but he's also showing them that they are sinners in desperate need of a sacrifice, in desperate need of salvation. Sounds again like a recipe for holy living, boldly proclaiming the truth, watching where you walk, what you touch, who you touch, and then finally, what you say. Now the reality is, guys, we can't do our own ability. I want to make it real clear. This isn't a recipe that you write all these things down and say, I'm going to try my best to do it. Because without Him, we can do nothing. So we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help guide my path this morning as I walk. Help me, Lord, when the opportunity comes to be bold for you, because I can't do it without you, Lord. Help me, Lord, to touch no unclean thing. Help me, Lord, not to be in fellowship with the world. Help me, Lord, to walk obediently after you. Let my yes be yes and my no be no. Lord, help me. And you know what? He will if we will but ask Him. When you're submitted to, filled with, and directed by the Holy Spirit, you can live and walk in holiness. But without Him, you can do nothing. So what's the response of the guilty person? Because no doubt you hear these verses, and just like you here tonight, me here tonight, not, I blew it at McDonald's, what am I going to do, right? I mean, I didn't step up when I was supposed to. I, I, sadly, I've touched unclean things. Sometimes I've given people my word, and I haven't followed through. So I'm guilty. So what's the response of the guilty person? Let's pick up in verse 5 and see. And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. So the first response of the guilty person is confession. You know what? Until we're convicted of our sin, we'll see no need for a Savior. And until we're convicted, we will never confess. The first step to salvation is realizing we are sinners knowing that Jesus Christ is perfect, holy God, and we've fallen short of the mark, and then it brings us to a place of repentance and confession. Lord, forgive me. It kills me that we have people telling you, well, you, you don't have to confess your sin anymore. Once you confess it once, you don't have to co- What Bible are you reading? You know, the Bible tells us that we are to come before Him, and you know what? We need to be uh, hour by hour. Pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. You know what? If all you do is just confess when you're blowing it, you're going to be praying without ceasing. Amen? Because we blow it all the time. Not that that's an excuse for our sin, but Lord, let me walk in the fullness of your spirit. Help me to walk in the center of your will. And Lord, when I do sin, drive me immediately to a place of confession. I call this keeping short accounts with God. Don't store up all your sins for a week and then go tell God, because that's going to be a really long prayer. Amen? But you know what? When you sin and you're convicted, stop, drop, and confess. Lord, forgive me. I thought something, oh, forgive me, Lord. 
restore me to a right relationship with you. Let me not break that fellowship, verse 6. So after confession, then what? It says, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. And it says there, he has committed, whether he knows it or not. Whether he's aware of the sin or not, it's still sin. A female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. So if he's somebody that has a reasonable amount of wealth, he not only confesses, but then he must bring an offering. And remember again, we talked about this. For someone to bring a lamb offering, it was a major deal. Because they had to examine the lamb to make sure it was spotless. And the only way they could do that, more times than not, was they had to bring that lamb into their home. They bring that lamb into their home, and that lamb, they want to make sure it wasn't sick. They want to make sure it didn't have any, any limbs that were messed up. And they would watch that lamb and make sure it was perfect. But can you imagine bringing a little lamb into your house, or at the very least into your backyard, for three or four days to watch it to make sure it's perfect? Can you imagine the attachment your children would have to that little lamb? Can you imagine the attachment you would have? Lambs are just, you know, they're dumb animals, but they're pretty innocent, right? And so then what you had to do is you, sit, you confessed your sin and said, oh no, I blew it. And now the lamb's got to pay. I blew it. The lamb that did nothing but set out my backyard and was chewing on some grass, the lamb's got to pay. And so you've got to take the lamb down to the, to the temple, or to the tabernacle in this case, to, the, to that outside the tent of meeting. And there you would take that lamb and bring it to the outside of the tent of meeting, and you would have to slit the animal's throat, and blood would go everywhere. Can you imagine holding that little lamb's hand in your head in your hand and looking into its eyes and realizing you are going to die because of my sin. You've done nothing wrong. You're without blemish. But because of my sin, you have to die. And then you slit its throat. And then blood goes everywhere. But then it doesn't stop there because then you have to cut it open and remove all the fat out of the animal. And bring that and have it burnt on the altar. What a bloody mess. But it shows you again that sin has awful consequences. And sin is a bloody mess. And what it does show at the same time, though, is what a clear picture of our Savior. Because of our sin, sin, the Lamb of God had to die. Amen? He's the perfect Lamb of God, and He suffered and died that we might have eternal life. He was perfect, He's holy, and He did it out of love for us. And the difference here is, we talked about this on Sundays, that He's the Good Shepherd. And the the difference here in the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd, but in the New Testament, the shepherd dies for the sheep. We're the sheep, and he's the shepherd, and he died for us. That's the wonderful, loving, awesome God that we serve. Then it says in the last half of that verse that the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. Now, the priest is God's chosen intercessor to make atonement on behalf of the sinner. Again, a picture of Christ. Who's the great high priest? Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. I said this last week. I'll say it again. We don't need priests anymore. Amen? Anybody calls him a priest? Dude, we don't need you anymore. Don't need you. Sorry. Here's the reality. A priest was an intercessor between sinful man and holy God. Well, we only have one intercessor now, and it's Christ. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't have to run to any other man and at, tell him to you know, pray 12 Hail Marys or do something with your beads or whatever else they got you doing, right? To, so that then somehow you learn favor with God. We don't need that anymore. The price has been paid. Christ is sufficient. That's it. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we come to him. And so the priest making atonement here, a picture of what Christ did for us. He, atonement, think of at one mint, right? You want to be at one with Christ, you must be atoned for. 
And you cannot atone for your own sins. The priest, the great high priest, must do it for you. And so we see here that the lamb in this picture is a picture of Christ, and the priest in this, in this story is a picture of Jesus. The sin offering, again, when they, would, when they were done, they would take the blood and they would put it on the four horns of the burnt offering, and the, four, or the burnt altar, excuse me, and the four horns point to the four what? Points of what? The cross. Remember? There's blood at the top, blood at both sides, blood from the head of Christ, from his feet. And they would take this blood and put it on all four horns of the burnt altar, just as it would be on all four points of the cross when Jesus paid the price for us. Everything you see in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, and once again we see it here. They'd burn all the fat, give the best of it to the Lord. I remember how it talked about the fact that it produced a sweet-smelling aroma. You know what? It says it, it pleased him that he'd suffered and died on our behalf. It brought restoration. He, was, he loves his kids so much, he was willing to let his son die that we might have eternal life. Verse 7. So if you didn't have money, if you were not wealthy enough to have a lamb or a goat, it says in verse 7, if he's not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass, which he's committed, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and one as a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest, and he shall offer that which is for sin offering first, and wring off its head from its neck, but shall not divide it completely. Now this sounds like a lot of fun as well. Uh, if you don't have money for a lamb, then you get to bring a couple animal, uh, birds in, and the first thing you're going to do is rip the head off either a turtle dove or a pigeon. Now, we know that this was only for those who couldn't afford a lamb, so they had to be poor. But remember when Jesus was born, and they went after uh, the time of impurity for Mary, and they went in to have Jesus circumcised and also to make sacrifice, what did they give? Two turtle doves. What does that tell us about Joseph and Mary? They were poor. There's people that teach that Jesus was the richest man on the planet. I don't know what Bible you're reading. The Bible said he had no place to lay his head. And we've turned things all around to say that Christianity is all about money. You know, the Lord didn't care about money. You know what? He had no money. When it was time for him to pay the temple tax, he sent Peter on a fishing trip. You guys remember that? He said, go throw a hook in the water, and when you pull the fish out, open its mouth, and there will be the temple tax to pay for me and for you. Now, if he'd had money, he wouldn't have had to do that, right? But because of that, it showed Peter that he needed to trust that God would be the provider. And if, we're all, if it's all about having the biggest house and the nicest car and, you know, Jesus driving a Rolls Royce, that's noise. It's blasphemy. And people teach that all the time. Most of these evangelists on TV, that's what it's all about. It's all about give your seed offering, right? And then you'll have more money. And, you know, they think that that's what it's all about. But you know what? This is not our home, you guys. And, the, and the, all we'd be doing is having a better deck chair on the Titanic, right? I mean, the, the ship is sinking. We shouldn't be so consumed with how nice our seat is on a sinking ship. We should be focused on that which is going to outlast this life. And so it's so important that we be focused on the things above, not on things of this earth. And we see here in this, in this offering that they had no money, and we see here that these poor people were still able to come and give to the Lord because God is not impressed with your finances. We're going to see that there's even another offering for people even poorer than that. Because you know what? God doesn't need your money, and you don't have to have money to come before the Lord. He's not impressed with your finances. First of all, all the money's his. Amen? It'd be like my kids borrowing money from me and they come giving it back to me and thinking I should be impressed with that somehow, right? I mean, it's all his anyway, and so praise God, right? And so they take the turtle doves, and the first thing they do is they wring its neck, which means they take the head off the bird. That sounds like a lot of fun. Now, we talked about this, that wringing its head points to something else on the cross. Because what was wringing the head of our Savior? The crown of thorns, which again, 
Thorns came into existence in Genesis because of sin. Before there was sin, there were no thorns. So next time you, 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 know, you prick your finger on a, on a rose bush, just say, thanks a lot, Adam, Eve, thanks a lot, appreciate it, right? I mean, because there were no thorns until they sinned. And because of that, that's why he was, a crown of thorns was placed upon his head, because it was a picture of sin. And then it says there in verse 7, that after, or verse 8, excuse me, after they wring its head, they, they shall, but they shall divide it, but not completely. They were to pull the bird open, but not break it. Again, it says that Jesus, not one of his bones was broken, but they pulled the burnt open, spreading its wings. And what happened to our Savior when he was on the cross? Not only was his head wrung with a crown of thorns, but his arms were opened wide. The same picture that we see here in these turtle doves 1,500 years before Jesus was crucified and many hundreds of years before crucifixion even existed as um, a, a form of death. Then 9, it says, Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained out of the, on the base of the altar, at the base of the altar, it is a sin offering. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, that they pierced his side, and blood poured out of his side, which would be at the side of the altar. It's also interesting that it talks about in other texts that it's on the north side of the altar, and where is Golgotha? Where is Calvary? Where was Jesus crucified? Just outside the north side of the city gates. Picture of the crucifixion, many hundreds of years before it happened. It says the rest of the blood was poured out at the base of the altar. Well, we know, again, don't look at those pictures that you see of Jesus on the cross where he's got a little bit of blood on him. Remember that he was scourged, and most people died of scourging. That he would have very little skin left on his body. That his organs would have been opened up. And we know that it even says that he was beaten so badly that no one would even be able to recognize him by just looking at his face. So he was bleeding profusely, and the blood was pouring where? Down from his feet onto the base of the cross, just like here at the base of the altar. You know what? People that say that the Bible is just a bunch of nonsense, you know what? Read the book. Amen? How can you read this and not see Jesus? Only if you have spiritual blinders on. Aren't you loving Leviticus? Isn't this good stuff? God, praise the Lord for the book of Leviticus. It's good. Now, we know this, too. It says in verse 10, And he shall after... He shall offer the second as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. Now, a burnt offering, remember that when they were done with the burnt offering, they would also skin it and then take what was, whatever was left and burn all of it on the altar. Remember, again, skinning of the, of the sacrifice, like they would cut the bull open or they would cut the sheep open, they would skin it, take its skin off. A perfect picture of the fact that Jesus was scourged because they ripped his skin away. Again, all of it pointing to our Savior, every single bit. Now, it says in the rest of verse 10, So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. So the priest again makes the atonement. Man doesn't atone for his own sin. He's the one that has to come and slit the the throat of the sacrifice, but it's the priest that takes the blood and puts it on the altar. Why? Because only the priest can make atonement, because the priest points to Jesus Christ. That only the perfect set-apart one can, can pay the price for us. We cannot pay for our own sin because we are sinners ourselves. It must be a perfect sacrifice to restore sinful man. And what I love about this is it says on the bottom, and it shall be forgiven him. It doesn't say that you have to keep 47 other rituals. It just says through the shedding of blood is the forgiveness of sin. It's through that sacrifice and the priest interceding on our behalf, that's it forgiveness. 
Thank you, Jesus. Aren't you glad it's not Jesus plus 27 other steps to heaven? Sadly, there's a lot of cults out there that try to do that. By the way, how do you determine something's a cult? You've heard me say this before. They make Jesus less than he is and man more than he is. They say Jesus alone is not sufficient. And they say man you know, can do all these good and wonderful things. Man is inherently good. No, we're not. We're inherently wicked. Amen? We are. But praise God that we become new creations in Christ. And we become holy because He is holy. And we can live life sold out for Him. And God can use us in a mighty and a powerful way. And praise God for that. Verse 11. Now for the even poor. But if He's not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then... He who has sinned shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. An ephah is about, a tenth of an ephah would be about like two quarts of flour. And they would take the flour and they would make some cakes from it. It says, he shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. Remember, oil and frankincense was in the grain offering pointing to the perfection of Christ. And now in this sin offering, this trespass offering, as the man brings it to the Lord, he says, don't put this on it. Then he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful as a memorial proportion and burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priest as a grain offering. Now, the flower offering was for, again, for the extremely poor, who couldn't even afford two birds. And I love the fact that God's not concerned about our, our wealth. He's not concerned with how much we give. It's not, it's not the portion, it's the proportion. Remember the story of the widow and her two mites? Remember the men came in and they would change all their money into coins and they had these things like trumpets that went down into a big chest and they would take and just shake their money in there. Everybody would go, ooh, look how much he's giving. Right? And they would go, oh, wow, what an awesome man. And he'd be like, yeah, I'm pretty holy. Blow trumpets in front of me. Hey, pay attention, I'm about to give, right? And then, <laughs> right, and they'd go, oh, man, wow. Dude, you're, wow, you give. And then the woman that Jesus and his disciples are sitting by, and the little widow comes up with her two mites worth less than a penny, and she drops them in and walks away. Nobody even notices her, except for maybe the Lord. And the Lord says, see her? She gave more than everybody. Because they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her lack. She gave when she had nothing else to give. She gave all that she had. The Lord doesn't care about the portion. He cares about the proportion. And I told you the story about the man who said, you know, when they passed the offering plate, he wanted to put himself in it. Because he said, Lord, I want to give you me. And that ought to be our heart. Lord, I, I want to give you everything. It's all yours, Lord. Whatever you need of mine, take it because it all belongs to you. The priest burned a memorial portion, upon, and again, he took a small portion and burnt it on the altar of burnt offering. But as we remember back from the grain offering, that it was always burnt on top of the burnt offering. And the reason that's significant is there had to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And so the burnt offering would be on there already burning and smoldering. The blood's been shed, and they would take that grain offering and put it on top of it because there had to be the shedding of blood. And then again, the priest in verse 13 made atonement on behalf of the sinner, resulting in forgiveness and restoration. And what would happen? The rest of what was left of that offering was then given to the priest. Now, why is that? Because God would provide for those in ministry through doing ministry. He would provide for those who were doing it full-time, called by God, and He would provide for them from what was given. Most of you know, for 15 years, I worked full-time and was a pastor at the same time. And for the last month, I've been 
full-time at the church. And I can't tell you what a blessing it's been to me and to my family. And it's only because people are faithful to give that I'm able to live and do this full-time and spend 25 hours a week studying Leviticus chapter 5. You know, you can't do that if you're working full-time unless you totally give up the bondage of sleep, which I tried to do for many years, right? No, so the, the, it says there that that's the way he provides for those in ministry, is that we give from what God has given us, and then God takes a portion of that and provides for those that he's called to do the work of the ministry. Lastly, let's look at these restoration offerings, offerings in verse 14 through 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, said, if a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish, blemish from his flocks. With your valuation in shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary as a trespass offering. Now these restoration offerings, we're going to see them go into next week. And next week in chapter 6, we'll see the offerings where you wronged your brother, where you lied to a brother, or you, you were supposed to hold this stuff for him and you sold it, or those kinds of things. And we'll see the restoration, or restitution, excuse me, that's supposed to be paid to bring restoration. But here he's talking about sins against God. And when we, we always have to get forgiveness from the one we sinned against. And you know that every sin we commit, even when it's against our brother, first is against God. Amen? And so we have to have restoration there, but we also need to have restoration this way too. Now in this case, he says, those of you who've taken of the holy things, right? You unintentionally have sinned in regard to holy things. Holy things of the Lord. And I believe that this is talking about improper use of that which is right, which rightfully belongs to the Lord. Improper use of, of maybe in their case of the offerings that they brought. They were supposed to take it and give it all to the Lord. Well, what if they brought some of it home with them? Well, in 1 Samuel, those of you guys coming on Friday morning, the boys were responsible for doing that. That's what they did. They took some of the offering. They were supposed to be burning it to the Lord, and they took it home for themselves. And he's saying, if you've done that, then you must pay restitution unto the Lord. It could be from the grain offering or those other things. But failure to give God what was rightfully His, whether it be in sacrifices, in tithes, or in first fruit offerings. It also could be a failure to fulfill a vow or to hold back from God. The Bible tells us that you and I are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The greatest misuse of the most holy is the misuse of our lives. Amen? In those days, if you gave a sacrifice and you held something back, that was a misuse of holy things, and you weren't giving to the Lord the way you're supposed to. But the Bible tells us in Romans, in the New Testament, that we are no longer making sacrifices, we are sacrifices. Amen? You've become a living sacrifice. God saved you not so you could be the biggest, fattest, healthiest sheep around, right? Right, just come and feed at church every week. Right, and just be big, fat, dumb sheep and just getting fed, 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 fed. We've told, I've said it before, the Dead Sea is dead because it's got an inlet and no outlet. And he saved us to use us for his glory. And the greatest thing we can hold back from God is our lives. We've been made holy through his shed blood. We are to be living sacrifices. When we hold back from him, we're violating what he's talking about here in Leviticus. Holding back in the holy things. Lord, take my life. Pastor Don used to say in San Jose, Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them. Right? I surrender all. Not really. 
You know what I mean? And we sing things like that, but we don't really. We hold back from the Lord. We don't want to be totally sold out for God. You know, I can't be going to church like twice a week. I mean, I don't want to get radical or anything. And, you know, and Lord, I, I don't want to share my faith at work because, you know, that's the pastor's supposed to do that or, event, you know, Billy Graham or somebody. But I'm not, Billy Graham ain't coming to your job anytime soon, by the way, right? And he's probably not going to be tooling through your neighborhood. So guess who God wants to use? You. Amen? And when we hold back at that most holy thing, the thing that God has given that we might minister to others, we're violating what he's talking about here. Holding back from God. It's a misuse of our lives that are to be holy and consecrated to the Lord. Jesus died for us. He saved us. He restored us that we might be used for his glory. The Bible says that you are his treasured possession. Treasured. He esteems you greater than anything else in the universe. He loves you. You know what? And we should be loving him back. Amen? And if we love him back, we'll show it by our actions. Now, it says if you've broken this, that you have to bring a ram. And those of you who've been coming on, on Wednesday nights, you know that first of all, the first time we saw a ram in the Bible was a Mount Moriah. Remember Abraham and Isaac? The Lord told Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one that I promised you, and carry him up on the mountain and sacrifice him there to me. And Abraham, being a man of faith, said, Lord, I was 100 years old when you gave me this son. I waited forever. I can't, but Lord, if you're telling me to do it, I'll do it. And he took his son. And remember the, the daunting question that came out of Isaac's mouth. Isaac said, look, Dad, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Imagine how your heart would be pierced as you're walking up the, the hill, and his son would be the one carrying the wood, just as Christ later would carry the cross upon his back. Isaac, a type or a picture of Christ, was carrying the wood up that hill. And as he's carrying the wood up that hill, he looked and said, Dad, you know, here's the, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where's the lamb? And I love the response that he said, My son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Some of your translations say for himself. That's weak. That should be out of there. If you go, look in the original King James, it says, God will provide, not for himself, God will provide himself. A sacrifice. And we know that once they got up there, that Abraham held up the knife and he was ready to slay his son, his only son, the son that he loved, the son of promise. And at that moment, God stopped him and said, now I know you'll hold nothing back from me. And then he lifted up his eyes and what did he see caught in a thicket? A ram. A ram. And he brought that ram over and that was the sacrifice, a picture of Christ. God will provide himself a sacrifice and the ram was a picture of Christ. And so what are they sacrificing here when they hold back the holy things? What is it that when we hold back from God, what is the thing that is sacrificed for us that we might be restored to that holy relationship with him? It was the ram, a picture of who? Jesus Christ. Now we know in Exodus, when we looked at the tabernacle, we looked at, the, remember the layers on the tabernacle? The first one was, remember the black Goat's hair, picture of what? Sin. And what covered that, that one? Ram skins dyed red. Picture of who again? Jesus Christ. They covered the, the, black, the black tarp with the, the ram, ram skins dyed red, the covering of sin through the shedding of blood. Picture of Jesus Christ. Man, I love the Bible. It just fits so perfectly together. We just take time to open it up and read it and spend time in it. So the ram without blemish, again, is a picture of Jesus Christ. And then it also says there in verse 15 that they were to bring a shekel of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. They were to come and give a temple tax every year. And that money that they gave was to keep the tabernacle going, to pay for the things that needed to be done. 
And so they would bring that along with their offering or a place of restitution. Verse 16. And he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing, and shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. So when they brought back what they had taken, they gave back that plus 20%. And why was that? Because they needed to see, first of all, you notice that the restitution came before the atonement. Restitution first, atonement second. Price paid first to restore that relationship, and then the blood was shed. And it just shows the picture of that desperate need for, for fellowship to be restored. And why did they pay 120%? It was a reminder to them that sin was unprofitable and costly. You know, when we sin, it does not work out for our good. It works out to our own loss. And then it says again, the priest, God's anointed intercessor made atonement. What did that mean? What did he do? The man would bring the, the ram in. He would slit its throat. Before he did, he would place his hand on its head. Remember this, guys? He placed his hand on his head. Why did he put his hand on the head of the, of the sacrifice? Pick, to say what? This animal represents what? Identifying himself. This is me. This animal represents me. I'm putting my hand on its head. This animal represents me, and now I'm going to kill it. And then after killing it, again, they would cut the fat out of the animal, offer it unto the Lord, again, without the shedding of blood. There can be no remission of sin. Verse 17. Good news is, after that shedding of blood, what happened? He was forgiven. Verse 17, if a person sins and commits any of those things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. Man, that's heavy. It says, if he goes contrary to the commandments of God, even if he doesn't know it, he's guilty, and look at the last words there, and he will bear his iniquity. The word iniquity there could also be defined punishment. So even if he doesn't understand or know what the commands are and he breaks them, even if he doesn't know it, he's still guilty and he still will bear the punishment of it. The Bible said it's appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment. And no one will escape it. And no one can say, well, I didn't know. I want to tell you this. I know this about our God. He's holy. He's loving. He's righteous, he's merciful, his desire that none should perish, no, not one. You know, uh, Bill and I were talking about this today. You know, a young man died at a young age, and you say, oh, that's not fair. Well, maybe if he'd lived longer, he would have come to know the Lord. Let me tell you this about the sovereignty of God. Whatever state we die in is the state we would have stayed in if we lived to be 200 years old. Because that's our God. He's sovereign. And whatever state we died in, even if we were 15 years old, the state where we were is the state we would have ended up because God never cuts anybody short. He gives everyone an opportunity to know him. And people either accept him or reject him. He's a faithful, a righteous, and a just God. Amen? And so he seriously says, you know what? If you sin, even if you don't know it, you are guilty and you will bear the iniquity. Now, you know what? That's what our job is, guys. For people who don't understand and know that they are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. May we live lives so glowing in the dark for Jesus that people will say, dude, what's up with you? Right? I mean, just, oh man, man, you're just like happy all the time. I mean, you have the joy of the Lord in the midst of difficulty. You can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you still fear no evil because God's with you. No matter what happens, you just are got the glory of God, the, the, the joy of the Lord in your life. Man, I want what you have. And you know, we can say to him, you know what? I was a sinner, but I've been saved by grace. And we need to be able to show people and point people to Jesus Christ. And that's going to happen when we live holy, set-apart lives. 
When we're so in love with him, people can't help it. How many of you have ever met anybody that, like, they're just engaged and they're all lovey about each other? You know what I'm talking about? You see the newlyweds at church, they're always hanging on each other, like these guys right here. Always hanging on each other all the time. And that's good, right? Newlyweds, right? I didn't mean to embarrass you guys, I love you. But that's good. But you know what? Isn't that how we ought to be about the Lord? Shouldn't we be hanging on to him all the time, talking about him all the time? Wanting to introduce everybody to him? I love bringing my kids down to where I used to work. I'm, oh, yeah, it's my wife and my kids, because I love my kids. I want everybody to meet them. I want to know that they belong to me. They're my kids. They're wonderful. It's my wife. And you know what? Shouldn't it be that much more about introducing to our people to our Heavenly Father? Man, I want you to know them. And see, people are walking around, and until they see that they're sinners, they'll see no need for a Savior. And when I witness to people, I love to take them first to the, to the Ten Commandments. Here's what the Bible says. Oh, I'm not a sinner. Really? I got, how much? I got 40 bucks. If, if there's any of the Ten Commandments you haven't broken, you can have my money. Really? Yeah, let's just go through them one at a time. And you start going through them, and, oh, by the time they're done, oh, I'm a sinner. Yeah, you are. Until you see you're a sinner, you'll see no need for a Savior. If you think you're a pretty good person and God grades on a curve, you won't say, oh, man, I'm desperate in need of God. This, this guy's in sin, and, in, and it says iniquity, and he will bear the punishment of it. But everybody who bears the punishment of it will choose to do it. Verse 18, we're almost done. And he shall bring to the priests a ram without blemish for the, from the flock with your valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he erred and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. He cannot have forgiveness, though, unless he brings the sacrifice. Without that sacrifice, no forgiveness. Without Jesus' death on the cross, there can be no forgiveness. You can't get to heaven through a big, fat guy named Buddha. Amen? You can't put oranges in his lap and pray to him all day long. He's dead, okay? And it's, it breaks my heart that people worship Buddha's dead. Why are you worshiping that guy? What about, you know, the Hindu faith or Islam? And praise God that Franklin Graham stood up and said, Muhammad is a false prophet and Islam is a religion of violence. And they, man, they got it. Oh, they didn't like Franklin Graham very much when he said that. But you know what? At the same time, he wants to go to Iraq and bring food and bring Bibles and just love on people. And we should stand for the truth, but we ought to love everybody. Amen? Jesus loves the Iraqis. Doesn't he? He died for them. He, he'd rather die than live that. He would have died for one of those people. So we should have a burden for them. We should be praying that God will bring revival. And praise God that Saddam is hopefully out of there. Because you know what? May God open it up that no longer will be mandated that they have to believe in Muhammad anymore. But now may there be an opportunity for the gospel to come to Iraq. Amen? And if one person gets saved because of this, this whole thing we've gone through, it's worth it. Amen? Isn't it? So praise God. And so we see here that it says they'll bear the guilt, but he realizes his sin, and then he brings the, the sacrifice to the priest, the intercessor, and the intercessor then goes before God and makes the sacrifice for him. The ram again brought into the court, hand on his head, he's killed, the fat is removed. In verse 19, it is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. You know what? You and I have certainly trespassed against the Lord. If you're here tonight and you don't know God, you're not going to get there by coming to church or just being a good person. At some point, you must realize your sinfulness and your desperate need for a Savior. But the good news is, you don't have to go down to the local farm and buy a sheep and then take it to your house and watch it for four days and make sure it's perfect and then drag it down to the VHM and, and, and hold its hand 
its head in your hand out here and slit its throat. And praise God, I'm not up here sprinkling blood on any horns or anything. Thank you, Jesus, right? The good news is, it is finished. Amen? That's what Jesus said on the cross, to talisty. And so if you're here tonight, you don't know the Lord. He paid the price for you, and all you have to do is confess, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and He will forgive you. And if you're here tonight, and you're a Christian, and you've been blowing it, and you're not real, you know what? The Lord wants to put you back in that right fellowship with Him. And the same thing must happen. We must come with hearts of confession and say, Lord, I have not been walking with you. Lord, I've been putting other things before you. Lord, I have not been giving that most holy offering myself to you. Lord, I've been touching the things I shouldn't touch. I've been saying things I shouldn't say. I've, Lord, I've, I've not spoken up for you when I've been called to. But the Lord desires to restore us to that right relationship with Him because we can take a million steps away. But praise God, it really is only one step back. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I just pray if there's even one person here tonight that does not know you, that Father God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, not the convincing words of men, Lord, would they see, that they would see their need for you. Lord, knowing this is a divine appointment, that before the foundation of the world, you knew that they were going to be here tonight. And Lord, that through your word, that you've reached out and touched their hearts. And Lord, I just pray that even right now, that they would not be ashamed of you, just as you were not ashamed of them on the cross. And Lord, if there's anybody here, just as that everybody, if you know the Lord, just be praying for those who may not. If you're here, the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. All I'm asking, I'm not asking you to join our church or anything else, but just confess you're a sinner and say, I'm in need of a Savior. And the Bible says when you do that, you have, you have the promise of eternal life. That your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. That the, the angels will all, they'll start a party up in heaven. And all you have to simply say is, yes, I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of a Savior. Lord, forgive me. Jesus, I believe that you're God. If anybody's here tonight and you've never done that, and you want to walk out of here knowing that you're heaven-bound, I want you to just raise your hand, and I will pray with you. Is there even one person here? You're here by divine appointment. Don't walk out of here without the Lord. If you're here tonight and you know the Lord, and you've not been walking with Him like you should, you know you've been blowing it, You've been touching things you shouldn't touch, things, saying things you shouldn't say, maybe not giving yourself completely to the Lord. You've not been opening up your mouth and speaking the truth when you know that you should. And you just want to ask that the Holy Spirit would just fall upon you afresh and just empower you to be the person God wants you to be. Just raise your hand and I want to pray with you. God bless you. God bless all of you with your hands up. Heavenly Father, I just pray for each of these, Lord. And you know, my hand is up with them. Father, I desire above all else just a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I, want to, I pray for each of us, Lord, help us, Father God, to be completely and totally sold out for your kingdom. Lord, help us to be holy sacrifices unto you. Lord, I pray, Father God, that you would help us by the power of your spirit, Lord, to speak up when we need to, Father, to not touch the things that will defile us, Lord, to be people of our word. Lord, I pray that we would be giving ourselves to you as living sacrifices, Lord. And we pray for Santa Cruz County, Father, bring revival here, and may it start in the hearts of every person in this room. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, you're such a great and awesome God, we thank you that you paid the price, so we don't have to. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.